Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Sunday Recap. This is Chris McLaughlin here with you today. Um, Ariel and Mitch and the rest of the team are are out. It's spring break, and so it's just me today, uh, and I'm sincerely sorry about that. Um, so today, we just want to let you know about a couple things as we get rolling. First of all, Easter services are this weekend. Uh, for Easter, uh, every year, we always do a Good Friday night of worship. That's going to be this Friday from 6.30 to 7.30. There's going to be childcare available for ages birth through fourth grade. So we would love for you and your family to come out for our night of worship on Good Friday. Um, then we're going to have three Easter services, one on Saturday night from 6.30 to about 7.30 as well. And then uh, our normal service times on Sunday from uh, one at nine o'clock and one at 10.45. And this is a, again, well, we're going to have child care for, for all of that. Look, this is a great time to to come back to church and really to have your your family uh, come with you and friends and neighbors and people like that come with you to church to worship. Um I think that this is one of those times of the year where people who don't normally go to church are looking for places to go to church. They're looking for uh, a reason to go to church. They're looking for a place to go and worship um, because they think that, oh yeah, this is something that I'm supposed to be doing. And you know what? That's okay. I think we can capitalize on that and invite them and uh, show them, hey, why don't you come with me? We'll sit with you. We can go out to lunch afterwards, all that stuff. So take advantage of this week to invite those friends and neighbors and family members and coworkers to come to worship uh, with you this Easter weekend. So we hope to see you there. Well, because it's just me today, we're just going to do a short episode to talk about the uh, the passage that Pastor Scott unpacked for us uh, this last weekend on Palm Sunday. The passage that Scott unpacked was John 18, verses 1 through 14. And this is the story that is uh, really the, the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this story is fascinating. It's one that I have always been confused by, uh, uh, honestly, because of the part where when Jesus says, I am he, or he says, I am to everybody, which is what Scott talked about, then everybody falls to the ground. All of the soldiers and, and, and all those people, they fall to the ground. I'm like, why did that happen? And the text doesn't really give us a lot of information as to why that happened. Uh, and I think that what Scott is talking about is exactly right. There's a uh, almost a glimpse of the holiness and the, the greatness of God that took place in that moment where everyone just realized, hey, um, this is this is God. <laughs> this is God that we are we are in front of and we cannot stand before him. But what I want to do today is I would love to just talk about this phrase that Jesus said where he says, I am. Uh, this was kind of the focus of what Scott was talking about, and I'd love to unpack this even more. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some other passages where Jesus said this, this, this I am statement. Um, and I think this is really important. See, one of the things that's going on in the world right now, one of the things that I'm actually hearing a lot from, from non-believers and skeptics is that Jesus never claimed to be God. That Jesus, and honestly, that, that's what they'll say. They'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'm like, well, how do you arrive at that conclusion? I mean, I mean, look at just this example alone where he says, I am. Uh, when he says something like that, people know what he's talking about. Um, the people of the time, they know when, 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 they, when Jesus says, I am, um, they know that he's connecting himself to the, what's, what we would call the covenant name of God. 
Um, so in the Greek, it's the it's the term ego emi is the way that that it's pronounced in Greek uh, when he says I am ego emi, and this passage this this phrase is all over the place in Jesus's life. Um, I just want to show you uh, four examples of this. So the first is right out of Matthew 14, and this is at verse 27. So Matthew 14 is this story where Jesus walks on the water. And we don't only see this in Matthew's gospel, but also in Mark's. It's the same thing. What happens is uh, the disciples get into the boat. They they, they're, they're heading to the other side of the lake. Jesus says, I'll catch up with you. And so as they're rowing in the, in the boats or sailing on the, on the lake, they see someone that looks like a ghost that's out there and, and it's Jesus and he's walking on the water. And what happens, I'll pick it up here at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, in our uh, uh, in the ESV translation, that uh, phrase, it is I, is how they translate it, but that is the exact same phrase, ego and me. In other words, he's saying, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And what I think this is so interesting is because this is hearkening back to promises that God makes about his presence with his people. Um, so like, for example, in the Old Testament, one of the, one of the images of sort of fear and chaos and all of the, the craziness that happens in the world is water. Water is this thing that's, that is uncontrollable, untamable. It is not, and it's something that could absolutely devastate and destroy people. Um, and so water ends up being this, this symbol all through the Old Testament for things like that, for the uncontrollable circumstances of life. And what, what is interesting is here you have that image again. Jesus is walking on this water that is uncontrollable, untamable, and the, and the, the disciples that are in the boat are absolutely terrified. And Jesus comes out to them, showing his superiority over those circumstances, over those things, right? Saying, look, uh, I am, I am. Do not be afraid. And that points right back to like the book of Isaiah when Jesus says, do not fear for I am with you and do not be dismayed for I am your God and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand is what he says. It's as if Jesus is coming to his disciples and saying, look, all of the the promises that God had made to his people that they do not have to be afraid because he is with them. Look, I'm fulfilling all of those right now. I'm with you. And even in the midst of this chaos, of this, of this crazy storm that's going on and the wind and the waves, you do not have to be afraid because I am with you. Isn't that crazy? Let me get, let's go to another one. Uh, this is John chapter four. And in John chapter four, this is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are walking uh, uh, through Samaria. They're traveling and they're walking through Samaria. And if you remember, they don't like Samaritans at all. Uh, Jews and Samaritans did not mix, right? And so uh, Jesus is hungry. They're all hungry. So Jesus decides to sit down at the well and the disciples go into town to go get some food uh, to bring back. And so a woman from Samaria comes out to get water from the well. It's the middle of the day. She's got sort of a sorted past 
that's uh, that's revealed later on in the story. And as Jesus uh, sits there and talks with her, has this incredible conversation with her. Um, and actually, this is something that I got to preach on last year, so you can go back and unpack all that there. So that's <laughs> that's that's all online. But you know what's cool about this is at the very end of this conversation that Jesus has with her, verse 26, he says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the way the ESV translates it. But literally in the Greek, he says, ego emi, I am he that speaks to you, is the way that he phrases it. And that's a weird construction. It's a weird way to say it, but he says that very intentionally because he's connecting himself with that covenant name of God, I am, okay? And what's what's so cool about this is, again, you see promises of God fulfilled in this. Here is a woman who is alone. She's been ostracized. She's been uh, she's someone who is marginalized, someone who the rest of society has deemed to be unworthy and an outcast. And those are the people whom God has always sought to love and protect. And we see that all through the Old Testament, especially when we look at, um, I mean, I'd say Isaiah chapter one is a great example, or looking through um, the minor prophets as well, that you see over and over again how God cares so much about the people who are marginalized, who are ostracized, who are alone. And he, he has compassion on them. And here what we see is in God's covenant name being expressed here that, that, God, that Jesus is connecting himself with the love that God has for people in, that, in those circumstances. And I think it's just such a, 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 again, a beautiful picture of Jesus fulfilling the promises of God in that way. Let's look at another one. This is John chapter eight. The, the book of John actually has a ton of these uh, I am statements in it, which is so neat that, that John uh, has all this. But in John chapter eight, you have a very interesting story. Um, so Jesus is having this conversation with Jewish leaders and, uh, and, and they're arguing with him about all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, at the very end of this argument, of this discussion, um, and, and, it, and it's getting heated, like they're getting frustrated at Jesus. But he says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, that's ego and me. And here the ESV actually translates it that way to kind of to kind of capture and, and, and maintain what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is making a very clear and bold claim that he is God, that he is uh, someone who uh, is eternal. So, so in, in, at this, th in this particular instance, <clears throat> so in this, that he is eternal. So in this particular instance, you have him saying, before Abraham was, right? That before Abraham was, I am. And that's just pointing to his eternality, that he is someone who existed prior to the creation of the world, or at the very least prior to Abraham. But the gospel of John makes it so clear, especially in the beginning, chapter one, that there was Jesus and he was there, he's the word of God, and he was there in the beginning with God. Um, that, that everything in the world was created through him. And so he is pre-existent 
uh, to all of creation with the Father. And that is something that is then that Jesus is expressing here in this passage as he's talking with the Jewish people. So verse 59 is actually really interesting because right after he says this, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And that's kind of the end of the scene. So what, what I think is interesting is that the people, the Jewish leaders that he was, was talking to got it. Like they understood that Jesus was making a claim here that he was God. And, and so that's why I think it's, it's, it's fascinating that, um, that, there are, that there's this argument from atheists and skeptics that are saying that Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, this is the, such a bold statement that is clearly Jesus claiming to be God. And in fact, so much so that his, uh, that his enemies in this, uh, in this scene want to kill him for it. Um, and that would be, I mean, th- th- they got it. They totally got it. One more that I want to point to, and this is in the gospel of Mark. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And in this, uh, in this scene, this was a, a, a again, another really interesting uh, situation. Jesus has been arrested, right? So, so he's already had this, this scene that we read um, in the gospel of John where Jesus was arrested. He says, I am to all the, the soldiers there and they fall down. And one of the first things that happen is Jesus is going to go on trial. And he goes on trial in front of a number of different people. Not only does he go on trial in front of the Romans, but also in front of the Jewish leaders. This is a group of people called the Sanhedrin, right? And it's a, it's a group of 70 um, Jewish leaders who are their ruling council in Jerusalem. And so he stands before them. And this is uh, in Mark 14, verse 62. Um, and I'll, I'm going to back up just a little bit to verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst of Je- uh, in the midst and asked Jesus, "Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you?" But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed?" And Jesus said, "I am." And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, this is a <laughs> another one of those situations where Jesus is directly saying that he uh, is God. He said that that he is the Christ. He claims it, and he uses that same language: "Ego and me, I am." And not only that, but he ties his statement to uh, another passage of scripture. This is Daniel chapter seven, and what he does in Daniel chapter seven. Um, so Daniel, you know, Daniel is a guy who, uh, was a prophet. He's a really godly man. And he lived during the time of the Babylonian exile. And Daniel, uh, the first half of Daniel, um, verse, chapters one through six are sort of the story of what happened in his life with these different Kings. But then, uh, chapters seven through 12 of the book of Daniel, uh, are, are more kind of like his visions and, and, and these, these revelations that God had given him. And in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, he was given a very clear revelation about uh, the Messiah, about the, the coming of this anointed one that would, that would restore things and, and, um, and bring the kingdom of God. And so this is what it says. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one 
like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So put yourself in the position of this Sanhedrin that is interrogating Jesus this night that he was arrested. And they ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, ego emi, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He is claiming all of these promises uh, uh, that Daniel foresaw, this was 700 years, 600 years earlier, that the son of man would come on the clouds of heaven, right? That he would be presented before the ancient of days, God the father, and to him would be given this incredible kingdom that would last forever and all people and nations would serve him. I mean, the, the, the Sanhedrin did not like this one bit. And this ultimately ended up leading to his, um, into his crucifixion. That this is, this is what brought him to that place of being crucified. Now, what I, what I want to, the kind of the point that I want to make with all this is, is simply this. First of all, Jesus certainly claimed to be God over and over again. I think that we've seen that. And these are, this was just four examples, you guys. There's so, much, there's so many more. But what I want to show you here is that Jesus, not only is he claiming to be God, but he's claiming to have these attributes of God. And that's something that Scott really did a great job, I think, pointing out in his first point on Sunday. And one of those attributes that Scott pointed out is that God is independent that he's independent. Another, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. Another term for that is that God is assay, that he has aseity. okay? So when Jesus says ego em me, that he is the I am, he's saying, look, I need nothing. I need nothing for me to exist, to have perfect fellowship, uh, to perfect love and joy. I, I need nothing uh, from anybody. This is an incredible attribute of God. In fact, God is so uh, so interesting when he talks about uh, other things that are not a say. In fact, he ends up mocking false gods that are not a say over and over again. Um, I'm just going to show you a couple passages really quick. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40 verses 18 through 20, God mocks these false gods. He says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for, uh, for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will, uh, that will not rot. He seeks out skillful craftsmen to set up an idol that will not move. So he's, he's almost kind of uh, kind of mocking it. He's like, look, th this idol that you guys are worshiping, it has to be made. It has to be fashioned. It has to be created out of gold or silver or wood. And he sets up, the craftsman will set up the idol and it does not move. It does nothing is what he's getting to. And he's like, he's almost mocking this, um, this un this totally dependent idol. 
Another great passage on this is Jeremiah 10, chapter 10, verses three through five. He says, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. He's like, look, they are absolutely fruitless. They cannot do anything. And so God mocks false gods who are not a say. And see, like the one, the one true God, he needs nothing from humanity, nothing at all. Where false gods are completely dependent on humanity to create them, to protect them, and even to worship them, right? I love, uh, this is from John Frame. He talks about the, the, um, the aseity of God. He says, and in particular, he's talking about how this connects to worship. He says, we're forced to draw a metaphysical conclusion from the nature of worship. So he's saying we're forced to draw a conclusion about, the, about who God is from the nature of worship. If worship is what scripture says, then the object of worship must be utterly without any needs and independent of his worshipers. He is God by nature, self-existent, self-sufficient, I say. And you guys, I think this is this is really the point. Jesus being God, he must be I say, which means not only is he worthy of our worship, but he is the only one who is safe for us to worship. If we worship anything else, anything that is not I say, that is not perfectly uh, you know, independent, uh, something that that has to be created, um, something that needs our, our help to sustain it, ultimately those things will fail us. And that's, what's, that's why God is safe to worship because he needs nothing from us. But what does he do? Over and over again, he gives to us. He's the one that gives us life, that sustains us, that fills us with all that we need. With He gives us knowledge and wisdom and the air that we breathe, everything that we have has come from him. And that's why our worship is reserved for him alone. So in that moment, when Jesus is standing there before all those soldiers and he says, I am, ego emi, he's making a bold claim, but it's a claim that he can back up. And it's a claim that he needs to make. He needs to make it for us. He needs to make it so that he can, one, he can go to the cross and he can die for us, rise again as evidence that everything that he claimed to, to, that everything that he said and everything that he claimed was true. But he also needs to, to, to make that claim so that we know that he is the one and only thing that is safe for us to worship. So as we enter into this Easter weekend, let us worship our God with full abandon, because we can, because it, he is safe to worship, because he is worthy of our worship, because he is. He is our great God who needs nothing from us, and we can worship him 
Well, thanks for joining me today. And next week, we're going to have some more people here. I'm looking forward to having Mitch and Ariel back on the podcast with us. Plus, we're going to have a special guest. One of our women's ministry leaders, Rachel Reese, will be joining us in the studio for next week's podcast. So we're really looking forward to that. So have a great week, you guys. Happy Easter, and we'll see you all soon.